Hey Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette, and you're listening to Hey Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. This episode is sponsored by the Texas Outdoor Musical. After the first dark year in its history, the Texas Outdoor Musical is back in Paladuro Canyon State Park. This family-friendly show begins Saturday, May 29th, and seating is open to 100%. Reserve your tickets now at texasshow.com. That's texas-show.com. And as part of this podcast partnership with Brick and Elm Magazine, I also want to give a podcast shout-out to Sabra Kofer, Realtor, and the Living Texas Style Real Estate Group. Learn more at livingtexasstyle.com and sabracofer.com. Today's guest is Vic Raga who is a local hotelier. His company, the Raga Group, owns and manages several hotels in Amarillo along I-40. He's in the family business, but his family wasn't originally from Amarillo, and he originally didn't even want to get into the hotel game. So in this episode, Vic talks about how he went from a career in the aerospace industry to the hospitality industry, and especially how the pandemic impacted local hotel operations. Because of his job, of course, Vic has become an expert on travel and tourism in Amarillo, so I think you'll enjoy his perspective. Here's Vic Raga. Vic Raga, welcome to the Hey Amarillo podcast. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Jason, for having me. Well, it's, it's my pleasure to have you. I, um, I, I really want to talk about your career and the things that you do, but I want to start the same way I start with all of my guests. And that's to ask why you're here, how you ended up in Amarillo in the first place. So tell me that story. So the journey is, is quite long. Um, I was born in Wichita, Kansas. Okay. Um, don't remember much from, from Kansas. I moved to El Paso when I was, you know, just an infant. So a lot of my upbringing was in El Paso, Texas. Um, I grew up there in a motor court style hotel, probably what you see in some of these smaller towns. A U-shaped property, okay. you know, just one of those operator. classic Correct. Route sixty six. Route sixty six, yeah. exactly right. Yeah, you'll see a lot of those on Emerald Boulevard here in our market. Um, so I grew up in there in, in El Paso. You know, my parents were owner operators. They did everything from answering the phones, renting the rooms, doing the laundry, making the beds, all the maintenance work. It was kind of just a family business. And that's where you lived. I mean, you, that's where you had a, a place there that I that's guess That's where was we lived. Uh, most owner-operator hotels in those motor court styles have a manager's apartment is what most might perceive. Um, and it consists of like, you know, a kitchen, living room, maybe a couple of bedrooms, bathrooms, um, that sort of thing. But it's not, nothing lavish or extravagant like what you would see in a single family home these days. Okay. Does it feel uh, kind of like a hotel room or a glorified hotel room? A it bit doesn't nicer, really but... feel like a hotel room. Uh, maybe in the bedroom that you're in might be annexed off. You might have taken out one room count out of your inventory to accommodate another room. Okay. Um, but as far as the living quarters goes, the kitchen and uh, living area, it's it's pretty much like what you would see, like in an apartment, right? Like a two or three bedroom apartment. That's typically the feel and the jive of the place. Did it feel? Weird. I mean, because that's that's not a standard way to grow up. Most people are living in houses and stuff. It's I mean, did, not a were you aware of that as you were a kid? That this is a unique situation. Yes, we were definitely aware that you know most of our classmates or people that we we're going to pre K with don't live like that. We would go to their house for play and and you know ride bikes over there, but we would go to a house. We wouldn't go to a commercial business. Yeah. So that was a little bit uh, odd. 
Um, but other than that, uh, the home life was pretty much just like what you would experience in any other American family home. Um, good upbringing, you know, learned a really good work ethic, just watching my parents and, and how much they grind every day. So was that, was that a family business? I mean, something that they had always done? You just grew up in it? It's, it's the first business that my father got into. So my father is from originally from South Africa. He's Indian native okay. from India. But he had to go, as a young age, he had to go to South Africa and pursue work because there wasn't much opportunity back in India in the villages that we were in. So he left his newly bride, my mom, he left her back in India to take care of the farm and, and, and all that stuff. And my dad went to South Africa to pursue another, another industry or another career. And it wasn't until, I believe, 1964, my dad migrated to California because okay. we had family relatives that had already immigrated over, and they were able to sponsor his residency and bring him over. And my mom was still in India at that point, but that's where my dad really started getting involved in owner-operator, the hotel business out in California on the, on the, on the West Coast. Um, and over the time, you know, he's been traveling the country, visiting different relatives, different parts of the country, and he settled on Kansas and El Paso. There were just good opportunities. Um, some of our uncles were able to help him in order to purchase those properties, and so that's where he got started. We okay. had one where I was born in Kansas, and then the other in El Paso where my brother was born, okay. my older brother. So he would travel back and forth between the two markets, you know, trying to trying to run those. But at a young age, he had already leased out the one in Kansas. So he was just getting monthly checks and he didn't have to go okay. there to operate. So we were strictly there in El Paso. Fast forward a little bit. Uh, we got to Amarillo in 1987. Ironically, he bought the two properties in Amarillo on my birthday in 1987. I'm born in 81. Okay. Right. So there's only so you're pretty young span. then at that yeah, point. Young. And so 87, he bought these properties. I don't know if you're back around there, but some people might remember the Coach Light Inns. Yeah, exactly. There were two of them here. So my family purchased both of those. And so my dad moved up here. So I went to first grade at Lawndale Elementary School. That's my first experience with Amarillo was going to first grade at Lawndale. Uh, just a little bit different. Um, similar atmosphere, you know, group size or class size was good. But it was just different. You know, the, the environment was different. The weather was different. It, it took me a little bit to get used to it. Yeah, which is interesting because El Paso is West Texas. Amarillo is sort of considered West Texas. But they're both very different places. They are very different. I mean, it's, you get a mountain range in, yeah. in El Paso. You don't get that here. You'd be hard-pressed to find mountains here. Um, but, I mean, other than that, it was still good. You know, the people were always great. I made friends very quickly. Um, so, yeah, I was living at the Coach Light Inn on uh, I-40 and Grand, basically. That's, that's where I was growing up. So most of my upbringing was here in the Amarillo area. As far as my elementary school, middle school, high school years, that was all done here in Amarillo. Do you remember, you know, it's, it's always hard as a kid who has to move, um, you know, especially when it's a, it's a family business. And I imagine you grow up, you have you know, work at the hotel or you're involved in some sort of things. That's generally how it happens. Was it, was it tough to make that transition from El Paso that you knew to a, a brand new place? And not really. Um, I looked at it more like just like another road trip or an adventure. I knew we were moving there, but I, I really didn't have a whole lot of connection back to, cause I was still so young. Yeah, right? six years old. So my mind was still a lot more moldable at that point. Uh, my older brother, uh, he might've had a little bit more difficult. He's two years older than me. So, 
um, he might have had a little bit of a, a adjustment or you know acclimation period, a little bit less than what I had. But no, I just jumped right in, made friends very quickly. Um, went to Bowie Middle School. Okay. Uh, graduated from Caprock High School in '99, and then I went to San Antonio for college. Was the desire at that point to continue, you know, in in the family business to to be uh, in the hotel industry, or Not did at all. you ever think I'm Not I'm going to do something different? Because during that whole upbringing from elementary to high school, every weekend. I mean, which is a good thing now that I look back at it. But back then, as a young child, every weekend, all my friends were out going to birthday parties and this area, that park, you know, Wonderland Park. And I'd be in the laundry room helping my mom and them do laundry for yeah. the guests, right? Um, I'd help my dad fix door locks. I'd, I'd help him, you know, unclog toilets, uh, replace valves. Which is a good education It's for a great kid, education not now a that I look at it because that kind of propelled me to work with my hands and not so much with my head. And so, um, well, I mean, a little bit of both. But anyway, it, it, it taught me a, a different way to approach problems and scenarios. And um, yeah, it gave me a wide range of uh, skill set. So you went to San Antonio. What was the plan then? So I went to UTSA. Uh, I was pre-med. Second year in, I found out it wasn't for me. Okay. <laughs> my, back, my passion has always been about mechanics, right? Anything mechanical. Um, so I went into aviation because I love everything about aviation. And so I went to the Hallmark Institute of Aeronautics. I, I got, went out of UTSA, went to a trade school, Hallmark Institute of Aeronautics, and uh, got my A&P license through them. It was okay. a, like a two-and-a-half-year program or two-year program. And I got licensed with the FAA and started working for a company in San Antonio called Standard Aero. And they're an affiliate of Lockheed Martin. Okay. Um, Lockheed Martin, they would overhaul the F-22 fighter jet or the F-16, I think back then, uh, we were in charge of the uh, C-130 cargo plane, which uses the Allison T-56 engine. And my department was the compressor section. So we would overhaul the entire compressor section of that, that turbine engine, which is, you know, breaking apart the case, redoing the, the turbine wheels, replacing anything that we need to and put it back like new. And put it back on the aircraft, put it back out there for service. And I love that job. Hmm. I was there for 18 months, and I was the only person in the history of that company at that time that got three consecutive raises in 18 months. So me and my partner down there, I give a lot of credit to him, Lonnie Saunders, amazing guy in San Antonio. Um, he's the one that gave me my nickname, Vic. Because when I went there, it was Vimo, and they couldn't pronounce it. Yeah. And so my my partner was all like, I'm not calling you that anymore. I'm just going to call you Vic. Is that cool? And so after that, that's kind of how my nickname came about. Okay. Um, But yeah, the quota at that time was like one and a half units per day. Uh, Me and him were pumping out two and a half units per day. So amazing productivity. We just jive very well. And it was an amazing experience. I loved it. And what cut that short was a car accident that I was involved in, in uh, 2004. I broke my wrist, had to get a metal plate inserted in there. And during my rehab, I came back to Amarillo while I was on leave doing my rehab. I I did my rehab here at BSA. And at that time, my dad was building a new property. And so I started helping out with him just naturally. You know, what can I do? What do you need? And during the course of that whole rehab, I realized that I need to come here and help my dad. He's trying to grow the business and, you know, better himself. It's it's best off if I just come here and work for myself rather than go back and then... And I love that job. Don't get me wrong. Right. Loved it. 
Um, I would just you have been that... able to go back, like after rehab? Yes. Yeah, so my injury would have. Okay. My, my in-laws are there. So, so it, the injury didn't take you out of mechanical work or anything like that. No. So um, since then, I've recently got my uh, not recently. Uh, 2008, 2009, I got my private pilot's license. Okay. So I still fly every now and then. I haven't flown in years, but uh, my aspirations are to get my own aircraft someday. And so that, that's the aviation side of it. But in the short term, uh, when I got when I was doing my rehab here, my father was building the hotel. I just, something clicked in my mind. I don't know if it was intervention, faith, or something saying, you need to stay here. And so I did. I let go of my job down there in San Antonio, moved back up here full time, and helped my dad uh, build this property, which is the Comfort Inn on I-40 now. Okay. replaced the Coach Light Inn. Um, so that's the one that I uh, operate and manage now, along with three other properties in the area. Okay. Tell me tell me what those uh, other three properties are, just in case people have... So we have the Comfort Suites and the Motel 6 over on I- I-40 and Ventura, kind okay. of by Hollywood Road. And then we also have what used to be the old Travel Lodge on Interstate 40, um, Right in front of Bowie Middle School, in front of Dick Bivens. Okay. It used to be the old Howard Johnson back in right, the Right, right. A real distinct uh, sort of building there in the middle that was right. the, the lobby or a restaurant or something. I remember. Right, yeah. It's got yeah, it's got a restaurant. It's got meeting rooms. It's ba- It was basically a full-service hotel back in its heyday. Um, built solid. We're, we're working on a couple of options right now to rebrand it and reposition that property um, into something that I-40 can be proud of. Okay. Because I know there's a lot of you know, struggling properties and, you know, it's just one of our things to just kind of revitalize something that's there. And my goal is to try to make it like a brand new 1960s style hotel. Okay. Um, that type of feel. Because that, that kind vintage of boutique thing, like people like that. That's yes. something that, that's attractive to travelers. Correct. I mean, com- complete modern amenities as far as Wi-Fi and, you know, television and all that. But as far as the quirky decor, you know, the the weird tile, the, mm-hmm. the pastel colors, that sort of thing. So you still kind of get that vibe. I think Amarillo could really use something like that, similar to what Bobby Lee has with Big Texan. Right. It's got a very authentic, you know, Western vibe. And I want to try to bring something else like that into this market. And that's a national trend. I mean, you have people buying up some of these old hotel properties um, restoring them to a degree, but they still have that nostalgic feel. And so maybe they're upgraded, maybe they're a little bit nicer, not as run down as they might have been, but like there's still a, a category of traveler that likes to stay in a place that kind of feels vintage. Correct. Um, there's a lot of examples of this in the Austin market. Um, they've taken a lot of those motor court style older hotels that are around East Cesar Chavez and close to downtown. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're selling rooms at four or $500 a night. I'm not saying that's going to translate into the Amarillo market, but it's been very successful down there. Uh, people going in there and making something old look new. Mm-hmm. And I want to try to bring that up here just because we do have a lot of Route 66 travelers, even international travelers that ride this corridor. And that's our biggest lifeline is I-40. As far as the hotel industry is concerned, I-40 is the lifeblood uh, of that market segment. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. I mean, that's that's one thing that's always been fascinating to me is that, you know, Amarillo people will drive, you know, to and from the airport or something. They'll go down I-40. They see the hotels. There's always cars in the hotels. But we're we're disconnected from it because we don't need a hotel when we're here in the city. Right. But I know that there's a reason that those are constantly full. There's always people passing through. And so I wondered if you could tell me a little bit about that because you're on the ground, you're experiencing that day to day. 
Yes. Um, and recently, or not recently, but a few years back, I was I started getting involved with the Convention Visitors Council. It's mm-hmm. now the CVB, the Convention Visitors Bureau. I worked with Cash and Smith quite a bit. Uh, I work with all those folks down there at, at, at the city level, and they're, and they're all wonderful people. They really help put a spotlight on the travel and tourism industry in this market. Because, yes, you're right. A lot of residents that live here don't really see the tourism and the travel market. But us that are in that industry, whether it be Wonderland Park with, you know, Paul Borcott and, you know, Phyllis with her cowboys and cowgirls, there's an industry that's thriving on people coming to this area. And mm-hmm. even if you're a resident, when you travel outside this area, it's good if you talk about what we have to offer. Even if you don't go to those attractions, just let those people know if you're visiting family in Oklahoma City and Dallas Wherever you're traveling to, just let them know about our area, especially the second largest canyon. It's huge. I I have a lot of colleagues and friends in Dallas that never knew Prowler Canyon was even here Mm -hmm. because the state does a poor job of, you know, marketing it. And the city does a good job, but our our reach is only so far. We can't reach the entire state population. We just don't have the funding for it. But if the state did a better job on promoting the Prowler Canyon as a destination, that would definitely help our market quite a bit. Tell me about the people who stay on your properties. Are, are they people passing through? Or are they people who come to Amarillo for a reason? I mean, what, what do you find out about your guests? So we get a lot, we get a good mix of travelers. Um, most of our demographic, I would say around 40 to 60% of our travelers are senior citizens, 60 okay. and over. We do see our fair share of corporate travelers. Um, and we see a lot of families. We see a lot of families, um, especially during the spring break, summer season, winter season, we see those travelers uh, pick up quite a bit. There's a real, I guess, kind of a divide on I-40 between, you know, maybe the west side and the east side. You have tend to have a little bit more chain restaurants over on the west side. Uh, the east side is a little bit older. I, I wonder, like, is is there a difference in the people who stop, you know, on on one side of I-40, big Texan side versus the the other side? I mean, do you see that? Um. Not so much. Yes, the West Side uh, hotel market drives a stronger rate. Okay. Only because of the amenities that are available in the immediate proximity. East Side does very well as far as holding rate. Um, but there is there is a variance there. I mean, one side's closer to the airport. Yeah. The other side is closer to maybe the mall. I mean, I, it, there's there's different amenities on each side. Right. And, and, and a lot of the airport is most travelers, even if they're coming in from out of town, they would probably drive in early that morning, leave their car at the airport rather than staying a night. Uh, the airport that's right by the hotel, the Fairfield, that one's going to benefit, obviously, from late night travelers, uh, pilots that are here for overnight. They have the direct bill accounts with them. Okay. Just because it's a convenience. But as far as rate is concerned, West Side definitely holds a stronger rate just because of the amenities that are immediately available. In the summertime, you might see a little bit of a shift because you have events that used to go on in downtown. Of course, we're coming out of COVID, and a lot of those events are slowly coming back. Last year, we had so many cancellations. Um, I can't even tell you how many millions <laughs> of dollars that this this market lost. But um, it's coming back slowly, and I, I feel confident that our market is going to recover faster than some of these major markets and I actually have data to support that um, that we can go over if you want to. Probably. Well, yeah, I, I would like to to talk about that because I know that I mean, number one, COVID had an enormous impact on the travel industry, especially hotels. I mean, for several months, hotels were just figuring out how can we invite people into these rooms and and keep it safe. But 
in places like Amarillo, once things began to open up a little bit last summer, like we actually had pretty decent, you know, travelers, uh, numbers of travelers coming through. And I wonder if you could kind of tell me about what you saw as you navigated through that whole crisis. Sure. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm sure everyone in our industry would agree that April was by far the worst month in the history for hotels in Amarillo. Mm-hmm. But we did see signs of recovery and not full recovery, but signs of hope, I should say. Okay. Um, going into that summer season, even with all the cancellations and the conventions and the meetings that weren't going to be happening, travelers and that I-40 lifeline, you know, freight and transport still has to flow. You know, there's still business people that are traveling. There might not be flying anymore back then because they were scared of flying and being in that tube. So everyone took to the roads. Yeah, people hit the road last summer. Everyone hit the roads last summer. And so that definitely helped in keeping us flatlined and not having to go to severe and PPP definitely helped mm-hmm. keeping everybody on payroll. And, and, and those were a godsend. And then the EIDL loans, which I have mixed bag feeling about because it's not up to the business. That business would have been solvent if it wasn't for COVID and to put a burden on a business to say, Hey, take, just take out another loan mm-hmm. on top of the loan you already have. Well, that's not really helping us. That's just putting more debt on our balance exactly. sheet, right? It, it doesn't really help us any. It actually hurts us in the long run. And so I'm hoping that there's going to be a push once the recovery starts happening. And I'm going to start leading some of that push efforts here at the state level to lobby Congress to say, we need to forgive some of those EIDL loans, especially for the hospitality and restaurant markets, because those were the ones that were the most deeply impacted by COVID. Anything that had to do with travel, tourism, just was crushed Mm -hmm. across the board. And so those are the places that we need to start investing in and bringing those guys back. I mean, there's been so many businesses that nationwide that have closed that'll never come back. Even like generational businesses have closed because they just don't have the means or maybe the asset value doesn't justify the loan they're trying to seek. And it's sad. It just, it's really sad. On an operational level, what did those first few months look like as as you were thinking about, okay, I mean, you're thinking big picture, you know, what are our profits? Are people coming in? But you're also having to think about the ground level where you have cleaning crews who are interacting in spaces. You have, um, you know, people at the desk who are interacting with customers. How did you, how did you think about that process in those really early weeks of the pandemic? So it was it was a fast learning curve. <laughs> I'm not going to lie about that. You either had to act or you're just going to keep bleeding money. But yeah, luckily, my staff really rallied around the cause. And I'm very grateful that I have a staff like this because they, they felt the pain mm-hmm. and, and they felt it not just themselves. They felt it in the business. And so they said, Vic, if we have to take a pay cut, we'll do whatever you need to do. We just want to help however we can. And that really struck a chord with me. It's like, hmm. man, these guys really care. And so at that point, and right after that, PPP came out. So that kept us afloat for the first three months. And then after that, round two came out. So that kept us all the way up until winter. And in between, we worked with lenders. We worked with uh, SBA on the EIDL side. And we had to just figure out a way just to weather those six to eight months to get us past and over that hump. 
And some people, unfortunately, if they didn't have good relations with their lender mm -hmm. or good standings with uh, credit history, they weren't, they weren't able to access some of those. Even though they had perfectly good solvent businesses prior to COVID, just because of some demerits that some of these individuals might have faced in the past, whether it be bankruptcy or something, it automatically disqualifies you okay. from applying for some of those funds. Uh, which was which was upsetting to me, but I also understand the risk side of it too from the federal government. So it is what it is. But those that did survive barely survived by the skin of their teeth. Right. And I think most restaurants will attest to that too, that they barely survived. And now we're on the we're on the flip side where yes, the 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 indicators looking at recovery are looking very, very promising right now. March has been a really, really good month for travel. And I'm not sure. I don't know the restaurant numbers, but I know for hotels, it's been very well. So I'm sure restaurants are going to see that that ripple effect and they're going to be up as well. Um, so I'm very optimistic going into the summer months. Is that is that specific to Amarillo or is that something that this entire area or maybe the state is seeing? I believe so. So like I said, I-40 is our lifeline. And if you want to compare not apples to apples, but let's say to apple to like a Fuji apple, but Amarillo and Lubbock markets. Okay. They are different because Lubbock has a university. Amarillo does not. Amarillo has I-40. Lubbock has 27, which is not, it's not I-40. But it's people coming from it's, Amarillo. It's people you know? coming through. We recovered faster than the Lubbock market did. So if, if I was doing some uh, analysis in the past uh, or in the past couple of days, we lost cumulatively all the hotels combined in 2020. We lost $18 million in top line revenue. Wow. Lubbock lost $36 million okay. in that same 12 month period. So they're hurting twice as bad as we are. And if you go down the line, like the ones that are hurting the most are the destination markets like Austin, Grapevine, Frisco, Dallas, Houston, San Antonio. Okay. Those are the worst performing markets even now in this in this time period, they are the worst performing markets. And the reason is, is because meetings and events and sports was a huge deal, killed those markets. Right. When in the past, everyone thought, oh, those are recession proof. Those are recession proof because who, who's going to shut down hotels in downtown Dallas? Nobody foresaw that. But there was hotels shutting down in downtown Dallas that they just couldn't afford the, the, the overhead. There's no way, but just shut them down, put a security guard there. And that was the turning point to a lot of lenders to where they're saying, hey, we probably need to diversify because we work with a lot of community banks for our lending. Mm -hmm. And so because they know our market, we do have one national bank that does one of our properties, but we work with community banks because they know our market. It's hard for me to go and tell somebody from Dallas, hey, to come look at Amarillo market because they're yeah. going to be like, yeah, it's a cow town. When, you know, that stigma is there with them. Um, but the people here get it and they're willing to invest in those markets because they see the return. Um, our mayor, she owns a hotel here. Yeah, exactly. And there's a reason for that. Um, she actually has several, but there's a reason why she, she picked this market. Um, it's, it's a great market, but on the same token, we have to be careful on oversaturation as well. And so new development is great. I'm not knocking new development, but we have to be careful on not oversaturating the market to where we're diluting our value. Right, we don't want to start diluting rate in order to keep up. We need to. We need it the inverse. We want the demand to increase before the supply right. to increase. We need to be trailing demand all the time. I want to talk a little bit about 
you know, the development side of it, not getting too deep in the weeds, but I, I think there's probably a perception locally. People see a new hotel coming up and say it's, you know, Comfort Inn and Suites or something. And they think, oh, this big hotel chain is putting a hotel in here. Not realizing that in a lot of cases, it's somebody like you who's local, who has a local ownership group. Tell us about like what that relationship looks like. You know, it's, it's not some corporate boss saying, I'm going to put this thing in Amarillo always. It, it has boots on the ground that are tied to, you know, this community and, and families here. That's exactly right. So uh, I think, I believe all of our, all of the properties in Amarillo, with the exception of Drury, those are all corporate owned, are owned by franchisees. Hmm. So it's just like if you were to have a Taco Bell, I don't know if most of your listeners uh, understand the franchise model, but if you want to own a subway or if you go into any subway, they're all going to be franchisees. So that means it's an independent, just like you or me, right. putting money up to buy a storefront and paying Subway to give me the signage and the marketing and all that and you know build out my store. But the revenue is mine, right? So they're independently owned and operated. 90% of the time, those people are members of the community. It's, it's rare when you have people from outside of the community investing. Now, you do see bigger projects like, you know, downtown developments and some of those higher dollar ones. But the real small businesses that are here, they're, they're, they live in this community. Like, like we're, we, our kids go to the same school, you know, we, we attend the same city functions. We have the same quarrels with school boards and, you know, city politics and whatever else it might be. But uh, we're, we're here. We're, we're not some California investment group coming in here and trying to destroy the market mm-hmm. that's that's not who we are um but that's that's the biggest thing that i would say is yeah most of us are our franchisees and you know we're just owner operators just on a different scale and you talked a little bit about your outlook for the coming year um i i know things have started to pick up in in march and in april but what are what are you looking at or, or what are you preparing for i guess in the months to come um, so the months to come, we're just trying to keep up the demand that's 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 showing on our uh, for, future forecast. We're trying to keep up with that. Um, we're trying to streamline our expenses because there's still a huge hole that we have to fill from last year. You're kind of climbing out of that exactly last right. So it's almost like doubling your profit this year to try mm-hmm. to make up for last year. Um, in theory, I mean, it's going to take several years for you to actually recover from that hole. But that's what we're trying to do is just basically what's the demand looking like? You know, are our rates in line with what the market is doing? Um, And how can we provide the best service? The biggest problem that we're having right now is finding employees um, across the board. uh, Restaurants, but all of our hotels that we're talking about, um, everyone that I talk to, we're having a hard time finding staff for almost every position, whether it be cooks, uh, front desk, Housekeeping, engineering—it's um, hard finding finding people right now. There's just not anybody applying. Yeah, and and Amarillo is notoriously um, you know a place where the unemployment rate is pretty low, and then when you combine a lot of the um, I guess incentives that the government has provided over the past year, the you know bailing out individuals, it, it does sort of create this this crisis of having jobs available but nobody to fill those. Correct. Um, and that's a that's a that's a frustration on small businesses, is you're you're incentivizing people not to work, mm-hmm. um, in theory, and it's it's actually coming to fruition now. Everyone's seeing it in, in every single market that it's that's what it is. You're incentivizing people not to work. 
Now, in, sem- in September, I believe that's when the sunset runs out, right? And those unemployment benefits run out. But that doesn't help us during these busy months, right? right September right. is going to be the shoulder season for travel and tourism. And so we're not going to be looking to hire and recruit and, and bring all these people on board because that season has gotten past. And so that's the frustration that most people are feeling. And I know some businesses that are, or restaurants that are just opening certain days a week just because they don't have the people for five days a week. Yeah. And so that's unfortunate. So I, I think it's a double negative. Just It's, it's just, it's not going to work. You can't incentivize people to stay at home. And then on the flip turn, it also incent, it's artificially pushes wages up as well. The way I look at it, because if they're getting paid more, that's what they're coming back with. Why would I come work for you at, you know, eleven, twelve dollars yeah, an so hour? So you have to raise your rates in order to attract them back to right. a workplace. And that's good in the short term just to get them in. But then what happens in the shoulder season when you're gonna have to lay them off again mm-hmm. or cut their pay? So that doesn't do anybody any good. You you should bring them on at the prevailing rate of what the market's demanding. And then go from there because, you know, market rates are different in every single municipality. $20 over here an hour is not going to be nothing in New York City. $20 is is poverty line probably. Right. Or even, and most hospitality and restaurants are, they're, they're low skilled work. It's not anything that you need to go to a school and have a degree or, or, or to be certified to do, right? It's entry level positions. It's sure there's room for advancement up in management and, you know, marketing and accounting and all that. But the frontline guys are typically going to be like what you see at McDonald's, right? It's the first job for most of these people. They might be working through college, so they they don't mind, you know, $10, $12 an hour. I could do my homework at doing what I'm doing, night audit. It, It works for them. But to do it as a career, it's a little bit tough because it's either that or something will have to give. Either rates will go up astronomically to stay at all hotels to mm-hmm. supplement the cost, or you know labor is going to have to stay within the market rates of what that market demands. You can't have a one size fit all, like the minimum wage thing. I don't know if you wanted to get into politics in this thing, but I, I'm strongly opposed to minimum wage. I really believe in a living wage, mm-hmm. but those need to be set at the county level, at the city level. As you, opposed to a national Yeah, you can't do a one-size-fits-all. I mean, the $15, everyone's talking about that. But yeah, that might work in, you know, Zapata, Texas or something like that when there's only like 5,000 people in that city or whatever it is. But it's not going to work in Dallas. $15 is basically yeah. the, the, the minimum wage in Dallas for even entry-level work. And so you can't have a one-size-fits-all plan. It needs to be done via community, via city municipality, and geographically. Which is one reason a lot of people live in Amarillo in the first place is because the cost of living here is much lower than if you were on the West Coast, the East Coast. I mean, you have a lot of people moving here and discovering, wow, I can get a whole lot more house in Amarillo than I could in San Francisco. Yeah, your dollar does stretch a lot further in this market. And my wife, she's from San Antonio, and she had a hard time moving here. She hated it. Which is understandable. She had a hard time adjusting from mm-hmm. the big city life to to a, you know more of a small town. But we went back just this past year uh, to go see my grandparents right after we got vaccinated. We had went back to go see them, and she hated San Antonio. Hmm. She hated the traffic. She hated everything about it. And she's all like, I can't wait to go back home. And that was the first time I ever heard her say, I can't wait to go back home. Because she understood that 
your dollar and, you know, even getting things done in the day. In the hotel business, we have to run around a lot, right? We might have to go see vendors on this side of town, might have to go pick up stuff from the supply store, go to Sam's to go pick up breakfast and sweet shop supplies, whatever it may be. It's a lot of running around in town. If you try to do that in Dallas or something, yeah. it'll take you all day just to go pay a water bill in downtown if you had to go down there for anything or the tax office. So in that aspect, it's easy to get a lot of things done. And being that it's a small town, you're not just a number to whoever you're working with, right? Most people remember your name. They know who you're affiliated with. They, they just see you around in the community. So in that aspect, it's easier to get things done because people know other people. And in the big city, you're just like a number on a, on a statement. And I don't like that either. So I, I, I want to close this part, um, you know, by talking about, you know, you, you talk about it from your wife's perspective. I, I'd like to hear from you about somebody who didn't intend to go into the family business, but then kind of ended up in it anyway. And, and now you're pretty, you're pretty rooted in it. So like, do, do you feel like you're in the right place? This is where you need to be, not just in Amarillo, but, you know, working yes. in the hotel industry. Yes. So, um, yeah, my, my natural progression to come back into the hospitality business, I think, was the correct one. Um, since then, I've done a lot of things since I came back. I came back in 2008. Um, but since then, I, I've done a lot. I have a, I don't know if I mentioned this, but I have a United States patent, a utility mm. patent that I just got issued December 25th of 2018. Okay. Took me five years to get it done, but I got it done. So hopefully I'm going to be manufacturing a new product for sale nationwide and worldwide out of Amarillo. Does I it have to anything to do with... The hotel industry, or is it? Uh, something- it does and it doesn't. So okay. I don't know if I can talk about this or how much time you have. Yeah, tell me about it. I think that's interesting okay. as much as you can. So I have kids. Okay, I, uh, a lot of your listeners probably have kids, and so we have these cereal containers at our house that are like the rubber made ones that has a hermetically seal on the right. top. So I patented a different container. Because I don't like the cereal shake that collects at the bottom exactly. of those containers. All the dust. All the dust and the sugar and all that. So I patented a container that has an adjustable grate at the bottom of that chamber where you can filter out that sediment into a lower chamber. So you're eliminating your sugar from your kid's diet. You're maximizing the yield of the product that you want. Okay. Um, and, and I'm a milk drinker, right? Cereal milk drinker. Some people don't drink the milk. I drink the milk. There's two different types of people out exactly. here. So um, I drink the milk. So I don't want all that extra sugar and all those crumbs and everything clogging up the milk when I drink it. So it, it's, a, it's a weird, quirky thing, but I've, there's weirder, quirky things out there in the sure. market, right? There's People are selling cereal containers or storage containers for food, but all it has is like an airtight seal. Mine has that with this added benefit. Okay. And so that's the, that's the spiel. It's called a cereal sifter. Um, it's patented and I'm looking to bring it to market. Uh, problem is I'm having trouble with financing, right? I got to build the molds and all that. I can do it, but I'm also working on another hotel project. Yeah. And so I know the hotel project is going to generate me money. This is more of a pipe dream. And so if any of your listeners want to share the risk on investing in something like this, I'd be happy to hear what what they have to offer. It almost sounds like a Shark Tank kind of thing. It does. I don't I don't believe in Shark Tank only because um, they like to take the majority yeah, share. Yeah, you're giving yeah. away a lot of your share. Yeah, I won't sell it on Amazon because I know their business model. Um, I, I buy a lot of things from Amazon, but I don't like their business model and how they cut the small business out of their, their profits. Um, they'll replicate a profit or a product that sells well on their stores and they'll just cut you out. 
you, I'm sure your listeners know about diapers.com and yeah. everything else. So yeah, I'm not going down that road. If I do it, I'm going to be doing it through my own website, made in Amarillo, shipped from Amarillo, Amarillo workers, and that's what I'm going to do. This episode of Hey Amarillo is brought to you by Wick Realty. Wick has helped me buy and sell a home twice now. And in a city filled with realtors and real estate companies, they truly are one of the best. What I really love is that Wick is invested in seeing Amarillo flourish economically and socially for all groups of people. So if you're buying, selling, if you're building, if you're looking for investment property, even if you're a first-time homeowner, talk to Katie Wick or one of her outstanding agents. That's wickrealty.com, W-I-E-C-K. Okay, I'm back with Vic Ragha. Vic, this is the part of the show I call Eight Straight. Eight Straight is sponsored every week by Panhandle Plains Historical Museum in Canyon. It's the largest history museum in Texas, and its collection includes the fossilized bones of at least eight different prehistoric horses, uh, which I've looked at. You can see how the horse develops over millions of years. Um, learn more about that at panhandleplains.org. Okay, Eight Straight. I'm going to ask you eight straight questions. Can Most, I give a shout out to Stephanie Price? At you can, exactly, yeah. Okay. I you know Stephanie also, yeah, so somebody else who's very dependent on tourism dollars, Yes, uh, the museum is, so. Correct. And so I wanted to just give a shout out to her. Yeah. I, She's you know, an awesome person. This podcast is very appreciative of Stephanie. She sponsors every episode, and uh, I love the museum. Yeah, me too. Okay, so these are questions that I've asked most of my guests. Uh, you can answer in as much detail as you want to, and I want to start. We've we've talked a little bit about um, COVID and 2020, but what's one thing last year revealed to you about local people? Not just the travelers coming through, but you know, just your interaction. Are uh, you talking about like when COVID hit? Yeah, I mean, March? going through the pandemic at all. The people, man, they they rallied and they did what they had to do to keep this thing tapped down. I mean, when you look at other parts of the country, the ones that had way more lockdowns than what Amarillo had, and mm -hmm. their numbers have exploded. I understand the density and, and all that. But, man, we still had a lot of freedoms that a lot of other municipalities didn't afford to their residents. And that's what uh, I love that about the city government and all of the people like when it came to masking, all of that stuff, they all jumped on board and said, hey, let's all, let's do our part. Yes, there was hiccups in the beginning. People are going to oppose to anything new, but it didn't take long for Emerald to get on board. And so I'm really, really proud of that. That was awesome. Okay. What does this area have too much of? <laughs> you might not know because I'm bald, but wind. Um, <laughs> we always have damage at properties due to wind. Signage is tear and, mm -hmm. and, you know, billboards have to come down and redone. And yeah, so wind. Do you hear a lot from guests in your hotels? who are just like, what is happening outside? It's, yeah. We're pretty used to the wind. It's still annoying, but I imagine coming here from out of town and just getting blasted on some of those days. Yeah, we do, because we're on the interstate as well. And, you know, we have the double-pane insulated windows on all of our guest rooms. But still, I mean, when that wind hits that corner and it starts mm -hmm. whistling, it's it's it could be annoying. So, yeah, we do we do get those complaints in all that right. area. What does this area not have enough of? Uh, job opportunities. Okay. I think job opportunities is a bit lacking. I think there's a lot of room with the uh, trade center that's... Is it uh, the, the AISD. AISD, mm -hmm. sorry, thank you. AISD is doing that trade. That's going to help quite a bit with craft trade. But other than that, I'd like to see like a... I actually pitched it to the school board, but uh, I wanted to see like a, a test hotel where hmm. people can get into the service industry, whether it be, you know, marketing, accounting, engineering, you know, 
any any of those uh, food and beverage banquets that sort of thing but build some sort of like even a 10 15 room test hotel that we can market as kind of like a always in beta stage that you know people can rotate in and out and see if hospitality life fits for them right which is, is a pretty common concept my my son visited university of houston uh, a couple months ago and stayed at a hotel on campus that was managed by the hospitality students you know who were studying it there oh that's great so something like that would be i didn't even know that yeah and i'm yeah. in the industry which so. totally makes sense i mean but that's that's something that a lot of schools are known for but this area really we don't have a lot and it would it would actually not be that impactful as far as wanting needing grant money right because it would be an operating business Mm -hmm. so there'd be revenue generated there yes it might not be profitable but it would definitely offset a lot of the costs and the grants that you would need to receive to keep it functioning it totally makes sense i mean places like wt always need hotels i mean certain weekends i would like to see that come how do you describe amarillo to people outside this area i always tell them because everyone always says that lubbock is the bigger population but i tell them yeah lubbock might be bigger but we're the heartbeat of the panhandle Hmm. Uh, only because I-40 is the lifeblood, so I, I always considered Amarillo as the heartbeat. That extra forty or 50,000 people in Lubbock changes over from Well, you year take to the year. university out yeah. of there and you put it here, we got that population. So, I mean, it is what it is, right? We don't have a university here. Uh, I do like the city's efforts on getting the veterinary school here, Texas Tech, and, and with all the cancer stuff going on, I believe that this is going to be a mecca for you know ag- uh, agricultural and medicine. I think medicine is the next frontier that this Mm -hmm. market is really moving towards. We're poised for a lot of growth if some of the projections come true, and that's exciting. What's your favorite building in Amarillo? Favorite building? I don't really have one. Probably my house because my wife and my kids are there. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) um, But other than that, um, I do like the Santa Fe building because it's one of the oldest buildings here, and I'm glad that it didn't get modernized. Mm -hmm. Um, I I like keeping that that kind of feel in downtown where it has, still has that tie to the history. So, yeah. That's a legit answer. I, no <laughs> arguments with that. What's your favorite local restaurant? Um, anything Thai food. Okay. Um, so if I had to pick a favorite, I like Thai Thai Young Grand. That's one of my favorites. But, yeah, I like Thai food a lot. There's there's no shortage of Thai restaurants. There's not, especially where I'm at on the east side of it. There's right. tons within three, four-minute drive from me. So I've tried them all. They're all good. Thai Thai remains your favorite. Yes. Okay. What's your favorite local coffee shop? I don't drink coffee. I drink Indian tea, but I don't drink coffee. Um, What's different about Indian tea compared to uh, a standard tea that somebody else might drink? Oh, the masala. So most standard teas are just made with water. Mm -hmm. Ours are made with milk. Okay. Um, But the masalas and everything else that you put into it, we put ginger, we put masala, we put, and even the herbs are a little bit different. Um, And it's brewed different. First you brew it, the tea, with the water, and then you add the milk, and then, yeah, that's a process. And I, we didn't talk about this earlier in it, but, you know, you you were born here, grew up here. Does your family still retain, like, a lot of those Indian traditions, despite you being, what, second, third generation? So I'm second generation. Okay. Right? My, my dad, I guess, well, I guess I'd be first generation Indian American, because I was born here, Okay, right? So I'd be the first generation out of our family, but second generation hotelier. My parents were the first generation, and so we're the second generation. And so I guess the some of the frustration would be 
the generational handoff could be a bit tricky. Yeah. Because it's hard for parents to kind of let go. Always. Um, but that will come in time, you know, as, as they feel more confident of the way you're running things. And that's how I created the Raga group because I wanted to brand our last name. Uh, my grandfather's last name was Raga. And aside from like Patel or Bhakta, what you normally hear, it's a little bit unique. So I figured, let me brand it kind of like Trump, but not like Trump. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And you mentioned it earlier, but when was the last time you visited Paladuro Canyon? So I used to bike there all the time with my friend Minesh. We used to bike there all the time, three, four years ago. And then I developed sciatica in my back. Uh, I got plantar fasciitis in both my feet. And so I haven't been back out there and I'm regretting it. I need to go back out there. I just... I need to buy a full suspension bike is what I need okay. to save my back. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, that concludes the, uh, the eight straight questions, Vic. I like to end by asking my guests to endorse something. So what's one thing you would want listeners to know about or to experience? Know about, I mean, you know, just help your local businesses, right? I know most of you guys probably shop at them. Most of your listeners don't go to hotels. Mm -hmm. But uh, sometimes, you know, just take your lady out for like, you know, Valentine's Day or you know, if it's the kids are on a sleepover, come to a hotel. So, I mean, it would just help keep keep the community engaged with what's going on. It'll help the local businesses, restaurants, hotels alike. Um, but yeah, I, I completely understand that locals don't want to stay in local hotels, but we do get our fair share of them when they come in. You know, pipe burst or yeah. the heater doesn't work. We do get them, so they do. They do support us. We just like to see a little bit more of that. Yeah, it's, it's always so strange that I know more about hotels in Lubbock or in Dallas than I do about the hotels in, in Amarillo. And but that's, that's natural. I may be in a position to recommend somebody who's visiting stay in one. You know, you need to know what they're like. Right. Yeah, and that's the only thing is just, yeah, just you can help out your fellow man where you can. Okay. Vic Rocket, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Jason, for having me. This was, uh, this was great. And that concludes the episode. I want to say thanks to Vic for the interview. If you want to learn more about the Raga Group, you can visit ragagroup.com. Thanks to Angelina Marie for editing the show every week, especially this one, because I've made a lot of mistakes. And thanks to Panhandle Plains Historical Museum for sponsoring 8 Straight every week. And to Wick Realty and the Texas Outdoor Musical for sponsoring this episode. This podcast exists every week because of listeners like you and the local people who support it financially through patreon.com slash Hey Amarillo's executive producers include Barbara and Jim Witten, Priscilla, Josh Wood, Patrick Burns, Wilson Lemieux, Wes Reeves, Jason Burr, Katie Linger, and Jess Heredia. This has been episode 197. My name is Jason Boyette, and I'll see you next week.